Good morning. Thank you for that reading. Thank you. Thank you for leading us in worship today. Uh, my name is Brian, Brian Robinson. I, I get a chance to serve as uh, one of the elders here. And uh, it's always a little bit awkward for me to introduce myself because my family has been part of Crossroads for nine years. I've been serving as an elder since 2019, uh, but I preach just occasionally, so I know that there are some new faces here, so I want to be faithful in welcoming you and introducing myself to you. So uh, if this is your first time here, uh, you are welcome here. We're glad to have you this morning. Uh, I also want to thank Rod. Uh, Thank you for stewarding this pulpit. I mean that. Thank you for, for raising me up. God is working. It's really sweet to be here. I've been in this word. Uh, and I have to tell you that God's word is too great for me. That's a thought that I've had all week long, Lord, is that your word is too marvelous for me. I can't, I, I can't wrap my head around it. I can't plumb to the depths of it. I just, it's, 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 like, it's like I stepped into this, this book of James and it's like I took two steps in and it was, it, the water wasn't too cold and the, it wasn't too deep and then suddenly, boom, it's cold and I'm under it. And I feel like I've been treading water all week trying to lay hold of this text Who can understand the ways of our God? These are spiritual things is what I mean to say. God's word is comprehensible, but it is a spiritual word. So to begin this morning, what I'd like to do is I'd like to make every effort to simplify what it is that we're looking at today. So turn with me, if you would, to James chapter 1, and look directly at verses 21, 22, and 25. 21, 22, and 25 of James chapter 1. I'm going to read them again quickly. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. And now I'm going to paraphrase that for you. Accept the word. And do what it says, and you will be blessed. Occasionally, I will give a sermon a title, 
the purpose of a title for me is that I, I want to try to distill this down to the essence of this text in such a way that I can try to sow it into your heart. It's the thing that I want you to walk away with. It's the thing that I want to act as a springboard for you, that maybe the Lord will use it later on in your life. And so the title that I've given to this sermon is Holiness Before Happiness. Holiness before happiness. See, I believe that the three verses that I just pointed out and distilled down to accept the word and do what it says and you will be happy or blessed. I believe that the surrounding verses from 19 to 27 actually act to support that statement. And they will support it by restating it, by explaining it, and by proving it. So the question I have to begin with is why is James pressing the point that the word is planted and that the word must be accepted and that those who have accepted the implanted word must be careful to do it. I think that James has sanctification on the mind. Now, sanctification, that's a big word, okay? That's a, that's a theological word. Sanctification is the process by which we are made holy. It has to do with growing into Christian maturity. Christ-likeness. That is the goal of your salvation, is to become like Christ. And I believe that because as I look at this passage of Scripture, what I see here is I see the language of growth. Note verse 3 of chapter 1. The testing of your faith produces perseverance. Verse 20. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Verse 21, accept the word planted in you. These are growth and development terms. So James is writing to the people of God outside of Jerusalem, and he has it in his mind that they would become more like Christ, that they would be growing in their knowledge of God and in their faith and in their Christian maturity, that they would become sanctified. Jesus said, in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth, he prays. Have you ever wondered why it seems like you may not be growing in your faith? Why it seems like maybe you experienced this transcendent moment. This moment where you came to grips with your own sinfulness. The guilt of your sin, the weight of it came to bear on you. And so you turned to God because you'd heard the gospel. That in Christ there is forgiveness of sins by faith. And so you put your belief in him and you, you asked him, please forgive me of my sin. I want to be saved. I recognize 
that I am dead in my sin and trespasses. And so you accepted the word. We call that conversion. Now it seems like, seems like you're stagnated. Growth in the faith is stunted. And your life seems to be void of the power of God. I think that this text today, James is actually addressing that. And I think he's going to help us understand why that happens. You know, I have to say that as I've been in this text, something has really captivated me. It's captured my imagination. And it's the idea that, or it's the the truth rather, that James is the first book of our New Testament canon. Okay, if you're paying attention, you'll notice that, well, it's not right after the Old Testament. It actually comes near the end of our Bible. So it's not in what we call the canonical order. That's the order that we place the books in the Bible. But it's the first in terms of chronological order. Okay, the first book written. And this idea has really got my imagination going because I'm thinking, wait a minute. You've got this this baby church, okay? So Jesus has fulfilled his mission on the earth, his three years of public ministry. He has gone to the cross. He has laid down his life, and he has taken it up again. And over the course of the next 40 days, he has appeared to many people. In fact, on one occasion, he appeared to over 500 people at the same time. It's not Christian tradition. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. These are facts. And then 10 days later, after Jesus had ascended to heaven, where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, the disciples are gathered, and it's Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit is given and the Spirit falls on them. And Peter preaches. And that day, 3,000 were added to their number. Transcendent moment. They accepted the word. It was conversion. And some of those people from those 3,000 that day, and maybe even some of the 500 that saw the resurrected Lord, were now scattered outside of Jerusalem. They are the people that James is writing to. You see what's happening here? Now they've had about, let's call it 10 to 15 years. James seems to be dated mid to late 40s AD. So we'll just say 10 to 15 years after Jesus has risen in this church is now a baby turning to a toddler. That's the picture I want you to have in your mind. That's the picture that I have in my mind. And maybe it's because, personally speaking, my family is just coming out of the baby stage and we're in the toddler stage. I know something about the baby stage, let me tell you. In the baby stage, you talk to babies like they're babies, right? On the way down, my boys were joking around in the car. Jacob reached up from the back seat and tried to tickle me in the armpit, and he goes, coochie, coochie, coo. (laughs) 
That's how we talk to babies, and he's playing that role right now, right? We don't blame babies when they crawl into danger or when they pick up something and want to put it in their mouth. We're very gentle with them. We speak to them compassionately, right, softly. The tone matters. We change a baby's diaper, right? When babies need their diaper changes, a loving parent will change the diaper because if we don't change the diaper, baby's going to get diaper rash, and it's going to hurt them. And so we got to love them, and we got to take care of them, and we got we to feed them carefully. But then those babies become toddlers. And the toddler begins to speak. <laughs> and suddenly you realize maybe there is something to this whole sin nature idea. These ideas that they have in their minds start to express themselves verbally. And they're walking and they're talking. And I think that's what's going on here. If you think about that, if you let your imagination go there with this early church, 10 to 15 years old, they're toddlers. And the toddler starts to walk and talk. And just as toddlers do, they start to walk themselves toward the nearest pond or busy street. And the words that are coming out of their mouth are not good. And so James comes in like a parent. And the first thing he does is he addresses their bad thinking, their bad doctrine. He addresses the orthodoxy. I think what James does, I think he actually pulls a sword out. And I think he sees a dragon. And he's going to cut the head off of the dragon before the dragon eats the child. Let me show you what I mean. See, God cannot be tempted by evil. Verse 13. No one should say when they are being tempted that God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil. And he does not tempt anyone. Well, gee, what's the big deal? I mean, you know, just a simple misunderstanding, right? I mean, God's tempting me. Why are you suggesting that James has his sword out and he's looking at a dragon and he's going to slay the dragon? You see, not all errors in thinking are equal. These ideas that we have, or these ideas that we receive from outside places, they go places. Things happen with ideas, and that's what's happening here. See, there are two very serious problems with believing that God can be tempted by evil. First, this has led the people to completely misinterpret the nature of trials in the Christian life. God uses trials in the life of a Christian to produce Christ-likeness, to sanctify us, to grow us in maturity. But if you don't understand that, if you think that it's God who's tempting you, What happens? 
Well, instead of having joy in the trial because you trust that God is a loving and good father who has your best interest ultimately in mind, you become angry. And that's what's happening here. This toddler church sees that life isn't going in the way that they think it should be going. And so they're angry. We see that in, in, in James here when he says that human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. See, we have to understand that the way that James writes, he's not just pulling these things out of thin air. And so that just sounds like a beautiful thing to write and say, hey, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. What a, what a clever thing. What a wise thing. He's writing these things down for a reason. These people are under trial. Jesus has been risen from the dead. But not long ago, James, the brother of John, was persecuted by Herod Agrippa and put to death. And that may have actually prompted these people to leave their homes. They're afraid. They're scared. Life is not going the way they wanted it to go. And so instead of having the joy in the trial, they have anger in the trial. Well, why is that so serious? Let me put it this way. If you're walking on a path and you're scared and frustrated and angry at the way things are going, what are you likely to do? You're going to turn around. You're going to turn around. You're going to leave the faith. You're going to walk away from Christ. It's a catastrophic error. And it all stemmed from this one idea that God can be tempted by evil and that God tempts us. Anger led to the potential for apostasy which is death. I just want to show you that here quickly in, in Hebrews. If you just flip back one, one book here to Hebrews chapter 6, I just want to read you these words so that you understand the seriousness, the seriousness of the argument that I'm making. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. The writer says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. James is a remarkable pastor. He sees what's happening. He's stepping in and he's protecting this young child of a church. Well, believe it or not, there's a second error to this thinking and it's actually worse than the first. See, what happens when we believe that God can be tempted by evil is when you get underneath that, what you really realize is that this is an attack on the very nature of God himself. See, if God can be tempted by evil, then God could potentially 
succumb to the temptation. And this begins to destabilize the very nature of God, his attributes of justice and holiness. So James comes in and says, God cannot be tempted by evil. John put it this way. He said that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So if the first error was tragic in that it could lead to apostasy, turning away from Christ, this second error, calling into question the very nature of God, would give rise to a thousand more errors. Once you've lost the nature of God, you're gone and you're gonna bring a lot of people with you. So in that way, it's as though James is actually pastoring by protecting and preserving the church that's outside of Jerusalem. So he sends them this word and he pulls them back. So then what's he do? He offers a solution next, okay? So the next two things we, we see that James does, he offers a solution with a promise. So what is the solution? How is it that James tells the people to guard against this wrong thinking, this bad doctrine? And I love what he also does. In addition to providing them with a solution, he actually gives them a solution to their anger. He tells them how to be happy. Happiness. This is a really big idea that James has here in this text. And so I want to read it again, just the, the, the few verses from, from uh, verse 22 to 25. Let's look at that one more time. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror. And after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. That's why I say that James gives them a promise of happiness, because they'll be blessed in what they do. That blessing, that blessed is like... You know, contentment, satisfied, fulfilled, otherwise known as happy. So why do we have to do what we hear? What's up with that? Why is this such a big deal that we would do the word that we hear? See, I think two things are accomplished. And, and, and I have to say that this kind of blew my mind when I, when I, when I figured this out once I began to understand what's accomplished in the doing. See, the first thing that happens when we actually try to do the word of God is we become exposed to ourself. See, James is addressing self-deception. When we try to do the commands of God, suddenly we realize that I'm not as selfless as I thought I was, I'm actually more selfish. When I try to obey the commands of God, suddenly I realize that I'm not as generous as I thought I was, that I covet, that I'm envious, that I'm not quick to forgive, that I'm quick to anger. 
But we have to try. We have to try to do the word. Otherwise, we deceive ourselves. I like golf. I study the golf swing. I want to be good at it. It's a hard game. Let's say that I were to study the golf swing for like 10 years, okay? I mean, I'm reading every book that's been written on it. I'm studying Ben Hogan's swing. I'm studying Tiger's swing. I, I, I even take the time to go around and learn from the best teachers out there, right? Maybe I even go to school. Ferris State has a golf school. Like, I'm into it, right? And now we start having a conversation. I start talking to you about the golf swing, and we're getting technical. We talk about shaft plane, face angle. We talk about impact position. Man, this guy really knows what he's talking about. Right? I think I could convince you that I really was a good golfer. <laughs> I know I could convince myself that I'm a good golfer, right? But if I don't ever step up to the first tee and put a ball in the ground, and address that ball and hit it. <laughs> what happened? How did that happen? Right? That's, I think, what James is getting at here. It's possible for me to remain self-deceived as long as all my knowledge remains theoretical. But the moment that I attempt to put the knowledge into practice... The spell is broken. The spell of self-deception is broken. See, it's like we're all under the spell of sin. And sin is really good at hiding itself from us. You know, we think that we're better than we are. So James pastors the people and the solution that he gives to them to keep from self-deception, which is leading to horrible problems is that you have to be in the word and then you actually have to try to do the word and that becomes a check on you. It's brilliant. But in addition to breaking the spell of self-deception, it does something else. It does something miraculous. Trying to do the word of God actually blesses you and it makes you happy. How? How is that possible? Well, see, that's only possible for those who have been regenerated in Christ. We use the terms born again, right? That's accepting the word. That's that transcendent moment. That's when we cross over from death to new life. That's when we actually have faith in Christ. That's when we receive a new nature and the Holy Spirit is now dwelling in us. See, when that happens, we now have the capacity to try to do the word of God and to recognize the perfection in his ways. Look here again, verse 25, one more time. Verse 25. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in their doing. 
So we have to remember that James is speaking to Jewish Christians who really understood God's law to the best of their ability. I don't think I'm saying that as well as I could. Um, It's like God's law was everything to them. These were God's ways. It was his instruction. It was his path, right? Uh, Paul says, I think in Romans chapter 3, he's like, what good is it in being a Jew? And he's like, well, much in every way. First of all, we've been given the oracles of God. To have received the word of God is not a small thing. This was the only people group on the face of the earth that had received it in the form of written divine revelation as opposed to the natural revelation written on the heart. But see, we have to understand that God's law is at work also in the life of a Christian in a very real sense. It's just, it's not as though we try to obey God's commands as though we are able to establish our own righteousness or our own right standing with him. It's not like that because that's what Christ has done on our behalf. It's that we are now in Christ free. We now have the capacity to choose. Whereas once we were enslaved to sin and we had no capacity to choose, to obey God, now we can freely choose to obey God. Now we, we walk in his ways and suddenly it's sweet to us. We're happy in the doing. Jesus put it very simply, in fact. He said, if you love me, keep my commands. John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, Keep my commands. See, what Jesus does here is he rightly orders our obedience. It is love that comes first, specifically love for Christ. And out of that love for Christ flows our obedience. But make no mistake, the Lord handcuffed together law and gospel in this statement. but you got to get them in the right order. And it only works when you love Jesus more than everything. You know, we oftentimes don't think of Jesus as being a happy person. You know, I think of the Lord as gentle, compassionate, strong, uh, wise, You know, so many other ways, so many other things that I think of him in his human nature. But happiness is not really a way that I think about Jesus as being like a a fully contented person, fully satisfied, right, in life. But he was. How can I say that with confidence? Because holiness comes before happiness. That's why. And there's never been a more holy person to ever walk the face of the earth than Jesus. My friends and my brothers and sisters, you are called by God to live a life of holiness. So as James says, put away all filthiness and wickedness. Keep yourselves from becoming polluted 
by the world. Try to obey the will of God and love one another, starting with the most vulnerable among us. Stop pursuing happiness apart from holiness. That, my friends, is a recipe for self-deception. I'm not a, uh, I'm not a comic book buff. I'm not a movie buff. But I remember the movie, the most, one of the most recent Batmans. Maybe there's been one since. But in this Batman, there was a character, and his name was Two-Face. You know what I'm talking about? Two-Face. He, uh, the story of this character is that he, he was a district attorney. His name was Harvey Dent. Okay? And, and at the time of his, his, his service on the good side of the law as the DA, he was cleaning up the streets of Gotham alongside Batman, right? Partners in crime in that sense, in the good sense. But then Harvey experienced a tragic accident. And as he's in the hospital and he sees his shattered body, he has this existential crisis. And at that moment, Harvey becomes a villain known as Two-Face. And he literally becomes in the comic the, the embodiment or the personification of good and evil. Two-Face. Two-Face is when you put your wife and kids to bed at night and go out to the couch and open up the computer and start letting things into your mind that you should never let in. Two-Face is a person who pretends that they genuinely care about somebody else, but it's really just a clever cover for gossiping about them. Two-Face is a person who's scared to be a Christian at work. Two-Face is anyone who thinks that they can follow Jesus and tries to do so without first denying themselves. We are called to holiness for our great God said many times in his word, be holy, for I am holy. There is the commandment. Be hearers of the word and be doers so you don't deceive yourselves. Holiness before happiness. Let's pray.